Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. But I was going to say, what's a great way to start a new year as a church, right? So as Ryan mentioned, it's our sixth anniversary. I remember our very first service in the the church building that's now Moeller Brew Barn um, back on January 1st, 2017. And we had spent like five or six months really working through planning and working on the building and all that kind of stuff and getting ready to launch. And, um, you know, we launched there on January 1st, 2017. So we, uh, Glad to have a, a six-year anniversary. We hope everyone can stay after for, for lunch and a soup carry-in and just enjoy a time of fellowship, and we can reflect on, on six wonderful years that God has given us together as a church body here in Troy. But thinking about this, when I knew I had New Year's Day, I kept thinking, okay, what's a good way to start as a church uh, the new year? And so I kept thinking, you know, of some of the spiritually great things that we see here, right? We see folks who are um, ready to bear one another's burdens. We see folks who are coming around each other in times of need. We see folks who are eager to learn, eager to worship. And I also know, um, being an elder, you know, we hear and, and talk with different families about difficult things that they go through, right? And we know that um, lots of families are going through the stresses and strains of parenting. And whether that's parenting little kids who, who give you like no rest, or it's parenting teenage kids who give you no rest, or it's parenting adult kids. I know some of you have adult kids, and sometimes, I, I, you know, talking with you guys, it feels like sometimes you don't get rest because you're you're helping out a lot and and stuff like that. So we know parenting is a big thing right now with our whole church body. Um, we know uh, there's a lot of weariness and, and and discontentment, kind of frustration. There's a lot of job changes and and things that have gone along with the last few years, and and uh, you know, it seems like sometimes you know we're all dealing with these things together. And I think uh, when we stop and we think through the light of Psalm 16, we can stop and see that God has called us to where we're at in mission, right? So whether that's in a difficult situation or that's in an easy situation, we're called to mission there no matter what. I recently uh, had seen a, a link on, I don't remember if it was not the B or something else, but, but it was talking about this guy who had said, you know, he was struggling with being a parent. He had, um, you know, had a son. And, you know, he couldn't go out with his friends and go drinking anymore. And he had to be home on the weekends and he had to be there for, and, you know, just kind of, he was lamenting the fact that he'd lost his freedom. And, you know, everybody kind of drug him across the carpet there saying, you know, what's this selfishness and just, it's time to grow up and stop acting like, you know, you're 15 and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he was, he was wanting something different than what he had. He was wanting something different than what he was called to. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's often where our discontentment comes from, right? Is we want something else. We might be blessed with a lot, but we're still looking at that other thing that's shiny or beautiful or that we don't even see the bad side of. So we think it's a wonderful thing. We want maybe somebody else's happiness in marriage or somebody else's kids who seem to obey a little better or somebody else's job that seems to make more money. And I think, you know, if we're honest, we all struggle in some ways. And even when it comes to biblical belief, we can struggle, right? Because it's like the Bible sometimes just seems a little too simplistic, you know, and there's these wise Eastern philosophies or these wise Greek philosophies and stuff that we want to latch on to. And it's a shiny thing that wants to draw us away from true faith. And so I preach to you today as much to myself as I say to you, because I struggle with these things and I know my heart. 
deals with these things. But I don't come to lay on some kind of guilt trip, right? I, what I want to do is come and encourage you, weary traveler, alongside me to find our contentment and our stability and our joy in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Not in the material things, not in our family situation, not in our job, but in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Because all these things in the world are temporary, and we have this promise from our Lord that he will make all things new. And so we're here for a little while in the situation we're in for a little while. And God calls us to bear it and take that cross up with Jesus and to be our mission, to carry out our mission here in serving him. And so Psalm 16, I think, is a refreshing psalm, and it's a great way to start our year. And it breaks down into kind of four sections. So verses one through four, David identifies that there's two ways to live, right? We can trust in God or we can trust in ourselves, or we can trust in other gods. Verses five and six, when we trust in God, there is contentment. He goes in verses seven and eight and says, when we trust in God, there is stability. When we look at verses nine through 11, when we trust in God, there is joy. That's one of the biggest things I know I struggle with is just joyfulness, joyfulness in the situations I'm in. And that's why Psalm 16 is such a refreshment. So again, I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anyone to say, well, if you have faith and don't feel this way, you're off, you know, because we're all off. <laughs> so let's go together in scripture into Psalm 16, looking at the solution. I think this is also a great psalm to pray through on a regular basis to recalibrate our hearts back to God's calling to us. Let's kind of dive in here. Let's start in verse one. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Stop right here. When David's saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, he's saying, because I take refuge, right? He's calling for God to, to sustain him, preserve him, guide him, protect him, because he is following him. You know, he's saying, I am your child. I am coming, and I am making you Lord in my life. I am, I am uh, recognizing that I am but a man, and you are God. Now, there's some context missing around this word refuge, right? We know that David was fleeing many times from Absalom, from Saul, right? There's num numerous times in the Psalms he talks about refuge, taking refuge in God, right? And a lot of times when he does, there's some context around it. You know, he talks about his enemies, right? Sometimes it's even an imprecatory Psalm where he's saying, God, take care of my enemies, do them in, get them out of here, take them off my back, judge them and take, you know, and, and that's imprecatory calling, but we don't have that here. Okay, David is saying, in you I take refuge, but he doesn't necessarily say what from. But we know that David had that kind of hard life, so we can kind of imagine some of those things. And he says this in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And if you notice, your, your Bible probably has the first Lord in all caps, and the second Lord is a capital L in lowercase o-r-d. And that's a distinction there that the, the translators use. So Lord, all caps, is Yahweh or Jehovah, right? The specific proper noun name for God. And then Lord, lowercase, the uh, capital L and lowercase O-R-D, is Adonai. Okay, so the personal name of God, I say to the Lord, 
Yahweh, you are my Lord, Adonai, which means master. So he's got the proper noun, God, and then he's got the positional name, right, of master. So denoting God's sovereignty over him. I say to Yahweh, you are my master. And so he's calling to God's sovereignty here, recognizing that God truly is the master. He's not his homeboy or co-pilot. If you remember all the bumper stickers in the 90s, right? You're my master. And that feeling of sovereignty carries its way through the whole psalm, right? That God is sovereign over his situation. God is sovereign over his calling. God is sovereign over what he has. God is sovereign over all of it. And David then gets into verses 3 and 4. He contrasts these two ways of living, right? There's these saints in the land, right? God's people, the people who honor God, the people who want to do right, the people who want to give God the glory. And he says, in whom is all my delight. And for any of you who've led people, you know, in, at work, if you're leading your kids, if you're leading in church, when you're leading a group of people who want to do right and honor God, right, that's easy leadership and that's blessed leadership. That's joyful leadership, right? When people want to do good, it's a pleasure and a joy to lead them. And then when you stop and look here, he also says this, right? Those who chase false gods, they're not content or they're ignorant of God's goodness. They're either not content with God or they don't even know about God and his goodness. We are all programmed to follow and worship something or someone, right? And we can watch our culture just go in all different directions, following political leaders, religious leaders, new, new movements, new ideas, right? We're programmed to follow and worship. But when people don't know the goodness of God, or they're ignorant of God, or they don't want to follow God, they're not content with it, they're never going to be satisfied. It's going to leave them empty. It's going to leave them broken. So David's saying, they, their sorrows shall multiply. Right? So it's not just a sorrow or some sorrow. It multiplies. You think about that, right? One sorrow builds upon another sorrow. We've probably all watched somebody in our lives, or many people in our lives even, who have a sorrow. You know, they, they follow a bad philosophy, bad advice, bad life choices. And that leads them to worse life choices, which leads to worse life choices. I think we can see how this plays out. It multiplies. It carries. And he says this, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Right? These bad fruits and wasted efforts and attempts to atone for their own sin or attempts to uh, develop a philosophy of life to, to say, I can meet this. I can match this it still doesn't measure up, right? That drink offering of blood doesn't measure up. When you think about the word blood, what does blood mean? Blood, blood is shed for guilt. And so all these efforts to atone for guilt don't add up. He says, I will not pour it out or take their name on my lips. He's not even going to regard them, not give a place in his heart for them to have influence, to pull them away from God or God's counsel. I think we've seen this when we see people chase other gods, right? There's a recognition of guilt. A lot of people talk about uh, these different philosophies and religions and, and even social movements somehow, like they have a religious context sometimes, right? There's sin. If you cross the group in this way, you have to atone for it in that way. 
right? And there's this idea of us being in the grace of a movement or a grace of a, a political party or grace of some kind of social construct. And when someone transgresses it, right, they do a Maya Koopa in front of the press or something and they can kind of get back in good graces or they can be shunned and excommunicated out of that group. And, and that's the thing. There's this recognition of guilt, but without any kind of power to atone for it. And so I ask here, what is David taking refuge from? Like I said, there's not a lot of context, but I think we can stop and recognize that David is taking refuge from himself. Right? Because he's human, and he has these desires to want to follow another god. And he has these desires to trip and fall into uh, bad ways of thinking and bad decisions. And we've got some of those there in the Bible as examples. So he takes refuge in God from his own sinful heart. He's taking refuge from that desire to make his own path, that desire to declare himself sovereign. Instead, he says, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. God, you are my master, not myself. His own heart wrestles with wanting to run from God. But he's, he's talking about these two ways of living and how he wants to stand in the Lord. And we move in here and he finds contentment in it. He says this in verses 5 and 6. The Lord, again, uppercase, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David's kind of hearkening back to this language back in Joshua. After the conquest of the promised land, God took the different tribes. He allotted them certain lands. He put boundaries around them, and he said, this tribe here, this tribe gets this, this tribe gets that, right? And so David is kind of hearkening back to this and saying, you know, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You hold my lot. So it's a language of, of land and blessing and sustenance. When we think about this, God laid out where every one of those tribes would go. And within David's life, he laid out David's life, right? What he had, who he was. Remember, David didn't just like become king because he was born in a house that was king's, right? He was chosen, right? God had even chosen, like even put him last in front of Samuel when he was chosen. So God had laid out his life and where he would go. And again, he's echoing this sovereignty that God has this choice, right? Even when he says this, you hold, right? And fallen, these lines have fallen, right? Because God placed them there. He's recognizing God has given him what God willed to give him. I think when we think of an allotment of land, right, we can easily think about boundaries. And when people want to chase other gods, what do they want to do? They want to tear down boundaries, Right, we we use that language in our in our our kind of common parlance, right, for business leaders and and for you know actors and, and artists and things like that, right? Oh, they're tearing down all the boundaries. They're an iconoclast, you know, and that's always given as a compliment. But we think about a boundary, right? Boundaries are there, yes, to somehow contain us, but they're also there to protect us, right? A boundary is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. And David is recognizing the boundaries of what God has given him is not just a constraint on his desire, but it's a protection from his own desire, right? Because if he says, I want more, he's going to push out those boundaries 
and he's going to chase after another God and not find contentment. Instead, it's going to tear down the faith that he has. So these boundaries offer both a constraint and a protection. And even when you think of the word refuge, when he says, in you, I take refuge, right? You take refuge where? A citadel, a a castle, right? Something with walls, something with boundaries, right? The, The law that God gives us, the words that he gives us are not just a constraint on our desires in a bad way, but it constrains our desires in a good way. And it offers us protection from those kinds of outside things, chasing those false gods and the disappointment and the sorrows multiplying. We don't want a barrier or protection around us. We say, you know what, I'm an American and I'll conquer and I'll take it, right? Over the next hill, let's do it. These boundaries, they work both ways. What David is saying here to God is he's saying, what you have given me is enough right? You're my chosen portion of my cup. You've given me what you want to give me, and it's enough for me. And I'll delight in the blessings that you gave me, and I'll delight in the boundaries you gave me. And he's praising God for his provision, right? When we stop and think about what we deserve, David knows he deserves nothing but death, right? When we're sinners, we deserve nothing but death. So everything else we have is gain. Everything else we have is evidence of a mercy from God. So he finds contentment in God's ways. We stop and look at verses 7 and 8. He continues on talking about stability. He says, bless the Lord, again, Yahweh, bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So you think of how God's counsel comes, right? Comes through the Bible, Reading and study comes through prayer, preaching, fellowship with our fellow believers who who provide accountability and encouragement to us. And God's counsel includes that teaching and exhortation and encouragement. In Psalm 25, it says that God's counsel is for his people, right? It's a blessing to us, us specifically called in the Lord. We stop and think about 1 Samuel 8, and we think about what happened right? When Israel said they wanted a king. If you remember, right, God, God told him, hey, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, right? Because they wanted to counsel with other nations. They said, we, wanted, we want a king like other nations so that we can be like other nations. And God was saying, no, I'm setting you apart. And they're saying, nope, we want to be like other nations. In Psalm 33, 10 through 12, we'll put that on the screen here says this, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We stop and think about this. When we want to go and take advice and take counsel from other places outside a biblical source or a biblically encouraged and informed source, what do we do? We're taking counsel with the nations, right? And we're saying to God, your, your stuff is not enough, right? I need to go over here and get this other counsel. And just like Israel, we want to walk away. But because David is choosing the timeless wise counsel of the Lord, he stands on a rock that has never been moved, right? His feet are firmly planted. To outsiders, this might seem really simplistic, 
right? All that simple Bible thing, you know? Well, the world's not that simple. And they think it's simplistic, right? Of course, the king's going to need ambassadors and advisors and, and all that. But to David, he's seeking God's counsel first, and he's weighing the counsel he gets by God's standard. That's what he's saying here. And so therefore, he sets the Lord's ways before me, and that only comes through study and prayer. His heart instructs him. So therefore, he's not shaken by the things that happen in life. He finds stability in trusting in God. He was there before the beginning of the earth. He was there all through history of time, and he'll be there forever, right? There's nothing more stable than that. And so here David's saying he's choosing the good portion. We stop and consider how many nations, empires, and social movements, and cultural shifts and wars have happened in 2,000 years, yet the Bible remains unchanged, right? We share in a glorious inheritance along with the people that you read about in the book of Acts, along with the disciples that walked with Jesus. It's perfect, and it's unshaken, and it's unbeaten. So why would we look anywhere else for a standard of faith? Last year, I want to look at how he talks about joy, right? Psalm 16 here in uh, verses 9 through 11, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David is finding joy in God's ways, right? Even when it feels constraining, he's finding joy in God's ways. And you see that word, therefore, and we always joke around. When you see therefore, you ask what it's there for. Because of verses 1 through 8, his focus on God is joyful. Because he's recognizing these two ways to live. He's finding this contentment with God. He's finding this stability in God's ways and standing on it. He can be joyful. Right? It's hard to be joyful when you're not content. And it's hard to be joyful when things feel unstable. Right? And when we don't feel joyful and we feel discontented and stuff like that, right? are we really touching in and, and understanding the Lord's word? Are we digging in and finding his counsel? And again, like I said, I don't mean any of that like a guilt trip. I mean it to say, let's keep coming to the Lord. Let's keep drawing to the Lord. But God's not going to let him die in judgment in hell when he says this, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Right? We know that we have this common... Uh, this common promise that we will be resurrected as well like as our, our Lord Jesus was. And we won't face judgment in hell because Jesus comes to our defense. So in God's presence, he is finding this peace. He's finding the path of life, right? Rather than running after some other path of life that might seem fun, seem enjoyable, David is coming to the Lord and finding a path for life there. So David is choosing this good portion in the Lord, and because of that, he finds joy. Now, on the flip side of David's statement, right, chasing other ways of living isn't going to come to joy. It's not going to come to anything but emptiness. It's a hole that can never be fulfilled. Now, we've kind of gone through Psalm 16 through David's eyes, and there's a lot of commentators who would say I was wrong to present it that way. Okay, because it actually is very much prophetic words of Jesus told through David. Now, I think that uh, 
the way it's presented, I personally feel like it meant one thing to David in his time, like he understood it in his context. And it means the exact same thing as prophetic words of Jesus. And we're going to walk back through it through the eyes of our Lord. And then we're also going to walk through it again, looking at how do we look at it in a common day? How can we make this a prayer for ourselves? So again, some commentators say we can only read this as prophetic words of Jesus. I think we can read it through David as well as through Jesus, as well as through our own context. So we have this basic understanding of what the Spirit was putting in David's heart and what it meant to him. But let's understand that this points directly to Jesus. Let's kind of walk back through this and consider it in Jesus' time. All right, back in verses 1 and 2, right? Think about how Jesus called out to God, his Father, right? And Jesus recognized Yahweh by name and stated that he does the Father's will. So when we think of verses 1 and 2, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Lord, Adonai, Master. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3, we think of how Jesus rejoiced with those who were his people. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Right? Jesus took delight in his disciples. We think of the tender words he gave to his disciples. Stop and think verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So in verse 4, those who are running after another God. When I think about the Pharisees who ran after the law. Right, and the Sadducees who ran after their own their own um, ideas and thoughts, and then think about Rome who had their whole different set of law that wasn't based necessarily on on God at all. Were they ever regarded by Jesus? No, they were a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. Right, when the disciples said we got to kick Rome out, Jesus is like, that's not really what this is about. Right, Jesus, he didn't even regard him. He kept his eye on the ball and the mission he had and the calling God gave him drink offerings of blood like he didn't look at the pharisees and say well it seems like they're doing good enough right he said that never measures up what they said and what they did never satisfied their sin it could never measure up to their sin so in the last day jesus is not going to defend them instead he will judge them and they're going to say didn't we preach in your name right false teachers didn't we preach in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Think about that. The sorrows who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. They can never measure up to Christ. And they will face judgment because of it. But in those who are his people, he rejoices, right? He gives mercy to us when we're in confession and repentance and calling to him. He gives mercy to those that he, uh, he holds, that God predestined and gave to him. Think of verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We know Jesus chose to do his Father's will. Even in death, he was content to serve his Father. Think of how he prayed in Gethsemane. Right, for the cup to be taken from him. But he obeyed his father even when it wasn't. His chosen portion and cup was to die for us. And we think about that imagery. What do we do when we come here for communion? 
in remembrance of Christ, in remembrance of his body broken, in remembrance of his blood shed, we take a portion and a cup, right? And we share in this together, a chosen portion and cup. Therefore, Jesus holds an inheritance, right? This promise, he was returned to the Father and sit at his right hand and to hold all who were given him as his bride, right? A blessed inheritance. Verses seven and eight. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Jesus rejoices in those who are his people. And he knows their stability in his mission, stability in the people who are called to him, stability in this promise of redemption. And this stability allowed him to bear that cross given him by his father. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus takes joy in knowing that he will only taste death temporarily. Because God will raise him on the third day, his body didn't see decay, and he isn't in the grave. He was risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He bore our sin, yet was not left in hell. He was lifted up. And after ascension, he's at the right hand of the Father where he sits in full joy of his people who come to faith. You will turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Peter makes it clear that these words are attributed to Christ directly. So when we look at Acts 2, starting in verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here he directly quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses." So we see here, these are words that Christ alone can say. And at that time, David wrote Psalm 16, Jesus was with the Father, ready to come down to earth in human form, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to be put to death for our sins, and raised again to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And David may not have fully understood the prophetic parts of this psalm, but as he was crying for contentment and stability and joy in God, so we should too. We have the benefit of understanding what David may have meant in his day and how it was fulfilled in Christ. But how much more should we be praying these words in our own life? Think of this. Verses 1 through 4, right? Through God's gospel, he's with us. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we tempted to live life differently from God's ways? And again, I don't lay on any kind of guilt trip. Instead, I'm saying, let's 
I invite us all to come together and think about this. How do we end up trying to live our own life our own way? Do we build sorrows because we're trying to chase financial security? Do we multiply sorrow because we're chasing after lust or objects of our hearts, trying to find perfection in our spouse or our kids? When we're trying to find God's perfection in imperfect people and things, we're bound to lose out on joy and contentment. When we're comparing Instagram moments, when we're trying to work out our own salvation and be good enough, we build sorrows and multiply them. When we try to take refuge where our sinful heart leads, we groan under the weight of being unfulfilled. So I say, let's align our affections instead to what God has given us, right? The beautiful inheritance that we think we might deserve, right? Some, some health and wealth folks will tell you, you know, you deserve the yacht and the Maserati and the great house and all that kind of stuff. That may not be the beautiful inheritance God has for us. We might be calling something beautiful that is a heck of a struggle, right? We have a chosen portion and cup, and the word chosen doesn't mean I chose it. It means God chose it, right? In his sovereignty, he's, he's put me here in Troy, Ohio, and brought me a wonderful wife and kids that sometimes I have to remind myself, right, where I'm at as a beautiful inheritance because I get frustrated in it, right? Get weary in it. It may not be health and wealth and stability and security. Jesus Christ's cruise and portion and cup was to bear the cross for our sin. And we're told to take up our cross and follow him. So it might not be what we expect or feels good. It might not be what makes us feel our best life now or this perfect fulfillment. That's just chasing after another God. But when our, the Lord is our chosen portion and cup, we can follow him in the midst of a difficult life, raising children, right? Working through the issues of marriage. So it might see us through sitting across the desk from a doctor who gives us horrible news or what pulls us through job loss to where we can still find contentment, even knowing that God has allowed this. And we still find contentment in knowing that he has laid our lot in our lines, in a beautiful place. Verses 7 and 8, you know, we think about how the world wants to give us counsel, right? We want to follow our heart or our philosophy or Disney or Hallmark or whatever's going on. We often want to do that, right? We need to take refuge from ourselves in the Lord. As David said, right, it comes to nothing but heartbreak. So when we're people of faith and we take counsel from the Father, it helps us make sense of this lost and dying world that we have here. He comforts us in times of doubt and worry. He promises salvation. He makes all things new. And there's a stability in those promises that we can rest on. That's a stability we're never going to find in culture or politics or economics. We can take joy. We can take joy in God. I say this, I'm the king of sinners when it comes to taking joy because I'm not like a joyful person. Like my natural disposition is melancholy. And I work through this and my family is patient with me through this. And I say this to brothers and sisters who I know are weary and some who struggle with a lot of the same things or struggle with, with your own things. 
right? We can come to the counsel of the Lord, right? And we can take contentment with what he's given us. And when we do, we're going to find joy. And it may not be happy, giddy kind of joy. But even in our subtlety, right, we can show joy. Our God never abandons us when we struggle in the faith. He never lets us go when we struggle through contentment. He's not going to let us go to the grave in judgment. Instead, when we're called, we go to the grave with a promise to be risen again, a promise to be defended by our Lord and Jesus and to have new life in him. So ultimately, the life that we have is where we're called to mission. And it might be laborious, and it might be hard, and it may make you weary, but continue to the fountain of the Lord, to his scripture, to drink from it and be refreshed, to come to it in prayer and study and know and understand that the struggles of this life are temporary and that we have a beautiful inheritance, a wonderful blessing from God. No matter what we're walking through, he is never letting us go. He has us in his hands through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, that we can be encouraged through your psalm. Lord, that we can recognize the struggles we have with contentment, recognize the struggles that we have with joy. Lord, help us. Send the Holy Spirit upon each of us. God, as we start this new year, we can recalibrate. Lord, away from our frustration and weariness and onward toward the truth and the love and the joy you give us through your scripture, through the movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, through continual confession and repentance and fellowship with one another. God bless us as a church body. And I pray for each one of these households, Lord, represented here. And for each individual that's a part of this body, God, we pray for contentment and stability. God, we pray for joy. And Lord, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.